Well, thank you again, Pastor and Church, for having us. It's been an honor to be here, and we've already had a good time fellowshipping with you guys at lunch and uh, just getting to know you a little bit. Uh, if you have your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. And uh, I'm going to read verses 9 and 10 to basically start off with, but uh, we'll get a lot more into more text as we go. And uh, that's going to be just an intro to start off with. But yes, it is a, a privilege to be here and um, in Kentucky today. So, But Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 through 10 say, And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain, and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your word, for giving it to us, for your people here, and the privilege it is to gather together and worship you corporately. And I pray that you would help us to do that very thing as we listen to your words. And I pray that you would give me grace to be able to edify your people and uh, explain this text a little more in their hearing and that uh, your spirit would just take the words and apply them to each individual's life and heart in a way only he can and in a way that will really show them what to do, lead them providentially to um, your will as we, we talked about earlier today for each individual and, and just motivate us, Lord, to live for you, to glorify you in our, in our lives and to be a light that shines into the darkness. And I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Why are these people singing? It says they sung a new song, and then it even says a little bit of the words of the song. But let me ask you, why do you sing? And we were just singing. Why do you sing? Because you are supposed to? Because you like a particular song? I think it seemed to me like I, more people, we were singing louder with Joy to the World, and that, that is our first Christmas song we've sung this season. That was our maiden voyage into Christmas. So thank you for that. I appreciate that. And I love that song. And I think it seemed like it got louder and more oomph when we got into Joy to the World because it's such a good song and you can't help but love it. Uh, but is that why we sing? Let me suggest that they are singing because they are truly thankful that Jesus has redeemed them and made them kings and priests who will reign with him. I mean, this passage illustrates the principle of being before doing. This is a core principle in Christianity. You cannot truly act or do like a Christian until you are a Christian. We preach that and try to live that. And you will not really sing songs of thankfulness to God until God has changed you and made you a new creature. Being before doing is a core principle in Christianity because it is true of God. It flows out of who He is. All of his actions flow directly out of his character. And he never acts contrary to his character. And, and God is the ultimate example of integrity. And he desires for each one of us to have integrity. So he's the ultimate example of consistency because he never breaks character. And, and that's what I'm trying to say. If you're singing because of duty or you just say, well, it's what we do. I'm not really thankful in my heart. I don't really want to sing to God. Well, that's not, you're, you're not very, have very much integrity. You're slipping into hypocrisy right there at that very moment. And that never happens with God. Never happens with Jesus either, by the way. Uh, 
If you are being consistent with your character, the world might call it being true to yourself. I may say that now. But God calls it being a disciple. That's really what God says in the Bible. Uh, Be consistent with who you are. Christ has justified you and declared you righteous. Now live that out in real time. And and that's the the verse today uh, in Philippians. Work out your own salvation. Live out what you are. Now, be consistent. And it's called discipleship. A disciple of Christ is a Christian or a Christian, a little Christ. It's a follower of Christ. Now, listen to Matthew 28, 18 through 20. You know the text. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. The main imperative in this passage is for us to teach all nations or make disciples from all the nations. We don't really have an English word for that, Greek word there, I don't think, but I've kind of made up one. I call it disciplize. I like that word. I'm trying to coin it. I don't know if you'll go for that. But um, anyways, uh, disciplize. How can you do this? How can you make disciples? Well, first, you have to be one yourself. Being before doing. You're never going to make a disciple if you're not one. And, and the world knows this, and they can tell that really quickly. They'll find that out fast with you if you're, if you're a hypocrite or if you're real, if you're genuine, and then, and then they're drawn to that and want to be that. They want to be true, too. They want to emulate that. This is the beginning point of the Great Commission, right here with Matthew's version of it. I like Matthew's because it's very comprehensive and he gets into more than just proclaiming the gospel. He's like, well, also it's teaching and baptizing and and with that basically comes planting churches. I like, I gravitate towards Matthew's, um, the way he says the Great Commission, it's listed five times in the New Testament because Matthew's basically saying the Great Commission is church planting. It is not just proclaiming the gospel and then leaving people out in the world to fend for themselves, but it's baptizing them, and by implication that means there's a church forming. And they're going to be in that church, and they're going to get that accountability and that uh, what they need to grow and become disciples. So I I really latch onto that in missions to say, this is is it, this is what we've got to do. but that's, that's the beginning point where Jesus first mentions that. And He says, this is what you guys need to do. And then He leaves. He ascends to heaven. But look forward to Revelation 5. This is the future or the end game of the Great Commission. I love this passage too. It's a bunch of people who became disciples of Christ from all over the world and are eventually in heaven with God and join Him forever. These two passages work together quite well, don't they? Matthew 28, 18-20 tells us as disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. Then Revelation 4 and 5 shows us the results of such actions. A bunch of people in heaven singing songs of thanksgiving to God for making them into disciples. So you're getting this glimpse into the future of, of what you can do. That you will be a part of that. You will not only be there singing, But indeed, someone there singing beside you from some country or some language or even your own kindred is is there because of your witness and your influence in their life, your discipleship. 
so Revelation 4 through 5, the end game of the Great Commission, is what, I, what I'm calling it, will motivate us then to fulfill the Great Commission by giving us a proper view of God on His throne and the future around that throne. So in other words, if you're struggling with the Great Commission, you're saying, yeah, I'm, I'm not doing that. <laughs> I'm doing a horrible job of, of fulfilling the Great Commission. Look at Revelation 4 and 5 and keep that in your mind too and say, that's what this is heading to. I want to be a part of that. I want to have some input into that. And it will motivate you, but I think there's much more than that. That's a, even a, a low-key item in this passage. The big picture is God Himself on the throne with people gathered around Him, and you want to be a part of that, and you want everybody that you can take with you to be a part of that. What is the proper view of God on His throne then? First of all, God is beautiful beyond description. And, and flip back to chapter 4, and we'll start at verse 1. And I'm just going to try to go through it as fast as possible. It's a pretty big, big passage, but we'll get through it. Uh, Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne, and he, and he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. This vision is so spectacular that John really can't even describe God. He does the best he knows how by making analogies to the way precious stones reflect brilliant light here on earth. And, and this is very similar to what Ezekiel saw on God's movable throne in Ezekiel chapter 1 and 8 through 10. And in, in Ezekiel 1, if you say, well, it's hard to understand what Ezekiel's saying there, it's because it is. <laughs> because Ezekiel's having a hard time describing what he's seeing. He's going, whoa, this, this is what was, I was seeing. And he's using the best he can to get it down into human words and language. And there's even places in the Hebrew text there where there's indication that Ezekiel was almost stuttering was almost um, nervous, like he's trying to... It, I, I would describe it like someone calling 911 at an emergency and saying, you got to get down here and help me, this guy's in trouble. And they're like, calm down, sir. Uh, where are you at? And Ezekiel would be like, calm down, Ezekiel. What did you see? You, got, you, didn't, you, you, you don't know what I saw. So that's what it's like when you see God like this. Uh, John's grasping for analogy Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The word blessed here means a freedom from cares and worries, an extreme feeling of satisfaction because of inner character. It, and, and it is what God is in His perfection. God is blessed forever, the blessed one. He has ultimate freedom because of the satisfaction He feels because of His character. This is what the world really wants. They just don't know it. It's up to us to tell them. To see God is the pinnacle of all religious experience. It is the ultimate high. I mean, forgive me for that language. But why do people take drugs? Because they're bored with life a lot of times. And they're looking for something that can give them something more, the next high. And so then they they start out on something low and then that, that wears off and you need something more powerful and more powerful. And this, is, this, by the way, is the way all addiction works, whatever it is. 
it wears off and you need something to really up the dose and get the dopamines going in your mind more. And it starts with boredom and it kind of drives it, but it doesn't last. But seeing God will never dull because there is no greater being. And so there is no greater experience. There's nothing higher than that. You can't get a bigger dose. Isn't that wonderful though? So you can rest in that and you know that's where you're heading. And you say, you'll never be bored with that. And, and, and I think, especially young people kind of maybe struggle, maybe, maybe some of us older people struggle with the idea of heaven being boring. And the world portrays it this way. They'll portray it as people playing harps and sitting on clouds and it's boring. But you're talking about standing before the throne of God, an infinite being. There is no greater thing to discover, to be around, to get to know. And God is not a thing. He's a person, by the way. So there's no boredom there because there's always the next step with Him. It will never get old worshiping Him. This is a message we've got to convey to the world. It is not boring to be a Christian and especially going to heaven. So, you know, the, the old-time theologians called this the beautific vision. I like that. Um, because God is beautiful beyond description. The destiny of every Christian is to see God in His essence, purity as He is. We cannot now because we still have sin. John says it this way in 1 John, in his epistle, 1 John 3, 2. He says, Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Very exciting. Secondly, God is worshipped by amazing creatures. And I'm just going to go down through here real quick. Uh, verses 4 through 8. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal, and in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf, and the third beast had a face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying angel or eagle. And, and some of these are probably people, the church, and some of these, one of, this is probably the Holy Spirit and probably angels, cherubim, and different creatures, maybe some seraphim. There is debate on all these, what their identity is that we could go, get into and go round and round. But the point is, is that His throne is surrounded by amazing creatures that are spectacular in sight. And, and that is a place you want to be with them. You want to be there. You're, you're going to want to be there, and you should right now. And this is something we tell the lost. You know, this is exciting. Okay, God is holy. Verse 8, And the four beasts had each of them six wings about Him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. They're going to start to tell us uh, this passage more about the character of God. He's holy, totally separate transcendent, pure. God is eternal. Verse 8c to 10. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to Him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before Him that sat on the throne and worship Him that liveth forever and ever and cast their, thrones, uh, their crowns before the throne. 
multiple times eternality stressed there. Five, God is creator and sustainer. Verse 11, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, God, now Jesus steps on the scene, God the Son, is worthy. And I saw on the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, weep not, behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. So he's worthy to open this. No one else can take this book and read it. Jesus is sovereign as well. God is sovereign. Jesus is sovereign, both and. Verse 5, And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. The book or scroll, there is debate on what that is too as well, uh, but it is written on both sides to show the fullness of his account. So it, it's a, more of a scroll, and you would write on both sides of the scroll. So when you, it's rolled up, but yet you see writing on the outside, and you unroll it, and you can flip it over and read both sides. It's bursting with information, and it's sealed with seven seals to show the absolute secrecy of its content. It contains the full account of what God has determined will be the destiny of the world. Here we see that God is completely sovereign, is what it's really telling us. He's not playing guessing games in heaven. I mean, it's, it's the playbook. It's all written out. He knows exactly how it's going to happen. He's sovereign. He's omniscient. And it's there, and Jesus has it now. No one else is going to take that thing because they know they're not worthy. And God is not wringing His hands about what is going to take place in the future. He's not saying, oh, what am I going to do? about situations on earth and circumstances and I don't know if that guy's going to get in heaven and make it and be around my throne in the scene. No, he knows who's going to be there. He's got our names written down and they're on the scroll. And we serve a God who knows everything that will take place in the future. And that's the kind of God we serve. That's the God that gave us the Great Commission to go out and reach people. Reach these tongues and tribes and people of the world, these family groups, these people groups mentioned in Revelation 4 and 5. So, conclusion. Having the proper view of God on His throne will lead us to, number one, worship God. And I think this is the order of missions too, by the way. Uh, and by missions, I mean being involved in the Great Commission here. Not necessarily going to a foreign country and planting a church, but doing your part here in this church to evangelize these people of, of this area. It starts with worship of God in your heart. In other words, you're not going to go out here and really convert someone to a God worshiper if you're not. If you just go through the motions and you're just duty and you come in here and you don't really have that beatific vision of God in your mind on His throne and you come in here to worship, right? Look at chapter 5, verse 8a. And when He had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb having every one of them their harps. There's their harps. But they are worshiping with them is what they're doing. They're using them in the act of worship. And worship is a response to the revelation of God's character. 
when you understand the magnitude of this being, you can't help but fall down and worship him. So if you're not worshiping God, it's because you have a real, a real lack of understanding of the God you're supposed to be worshiping. You have some man-made image. Now, secondly, pray to God, verse 8b, and golden vials full of odors, odors, which are the prayers of the saints. This is a very fascinating verse we don't have the time to get into. Um, I wish I did, but that verse alone will motivate you to pray. Knowing that God is storing up your prayers. He's got them all in this golden bowl. Like, he, it's precious. Your prayers are precious to Him. He's not just putting them in a filing cabinet, but a golden bowl. Okay? And he's, He knows what you say to Him. He keeps track of it. And just knowing one day that you'll see that, I mean, that should make you want to get on your knees and pray and spend time in prayer, especially about people that you're trying to reach. You see? So um, gold is a very precious metal, and it indicates that our prayers are very precious to God. And thirdly, in this order, I think logically, make disciples for God. Worship God, pray to God, make disciples for God. Verses 9 through 10, we're back. And they sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by Thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and hast made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. The end game of your discipleship is to bring these people from all nations into discipleship and they will be kings and priests with Jesus Christ really in the millennial reign on earth and beyond. So what a fabulous text. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you again for your word and giving it to us in its clarity and um, for revealing things like this to us that we could otherwise never know. And I pray that you would uh, just give us grace to really keep it in the forefront of our minds as we go about our lives and um, not brush this aside lightly, but take the image of you on your throne and your son at your right hand interceding for us very seriously and uh, lead other people to that um, knowledge as well. And I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor. All right, have the ushers come forward, please.